we are going to be looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. Before we get started, let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship, to learn from your word, to uh, stand in awe of all that you are and all that you have done. Just pray that you would open our minds and give us understanding um, as you have revealed uh, the work of your Holy Spirit and the life of Christ in your word. And just pray that it would grow uh, our love for you and uh, our understanding of your work in us, and pray that it would better equip us to, uh, to worship you, to serve you, and to bring honor and glory to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Uh, so I was talking to Mark right before we started here, and there are some things that I'm going to talk about today where it could be very easy for me to fall into error, possibly even heresy. So if you hear that sounds heretical to you, uh, talk to me afterwards, anything in the middle of the presentation. Um, these are some things that, uh, that respected theologians disagree on. <clears throat> and some of, these, some of the issues are, are a little difficult to explain. They're very complex. Again, I'll do the best that I can. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. So, in order to uh, consider the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, uh, we need to sure, be sure that we have a biblical understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. So, a quick review of some basic of the Trinity, fully God, eternal, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, everywhere all the time, and he is eternally begotten of the Father. Is this thing like fading in and out? Yeah. Well, I'll just try to talk loud in those fade moments. At the perfect time in history, Jesus became incarnate, fully man, and he took on a human nature. Now, this did not diminish or limit his divine nature. So at the same time, he was fully God, and he was fully man. Two natures in one person. Because of this profound truth, actually mysterious truth, people have at times doubted the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, in the human nature of Christ. Because if Jesus is fully God, he can do all things simply by virtue of the fact that he is God. So why would he need the Holy Spirit? But this is possibly a mistaken way of thinking. It overemphasizes the deity of Christ to the de-emphasis of the humanity of Christ. In his deity, no, he does not need the work of the Holy Spirit because they are co-equal in every way. But in his humanity, he does need the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. So even though the two natures existed and exist in the one person of Christ, this does not mean that the divine nature overrode or imparted divine qualities or attributes to the human nature of Jesus. 
attributes like uh, omnipotence or omniscience. If that, had been, if that had happened, the human nature of Jesus would have ceased to be fully human. If that had happened, he would have had two divine natures, or at least one fully divine nature and one partially divine nature, which would have meant that he was not fully human. And if he's not fully human, like us in every way, he could not have been the perfect substitute for us. But Scripture does make it abundantly clear that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man, subject to all of our weaknesses, temptations, yet without sin. So, as a result of the fact that he was fully man, he did need the work of the Holy Spirit in his human life, in his human nature. The human nature of Christ, and you see that from his birth, from the incarnation, all the way up through his glorification. So, the Holy Spirit was operative at the very beginning. We're all familiar with that coming up on Christmas here pretty soon when we celebrate that. His incarnation, when God the Son, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, the birth of Jesus was brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. This was announced by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And it's recorded by Matthew in Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the one who brought about the conception of Jesus and without any involvement from Joseph. We all know that. Somehow, in uh, one way or another, these uh, truths are inexplicable. The Holy Spirit brought about the human life of Jesus in Mary so that even with the baby Jesus growing in her womb, she remained a virgin. Now, as with all acts of God, I'm going to qualify this. I mentioned this last week, but with all acts of God, all members of the Trinity are involved. Uh, but as mentioned last week as well, one or another member <clears throat> may have a primary role in a particular act. And this is the case with the incarnation or the conception of Jesus. This was primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. So the conceiving of Christ by the Holy Spirit is extremely important because it was necessary in order to preserve the sinlessness of Christ, which in turn was necessary for our salvation. And I don't want to get into a detailed explanation of how sin is transmitted or inherited through human birth, but I do have to touch on it briefly. So this does get a little complicated. Uh, everyone that is born inherits two aspects of sin from Adam. We inherit guilt from Adam. We say that his guilt is imputed to us, placed on us, and we inherit a corrupt sin nature that is predisposed to evil, rejecting God, going our own way. We're born spiritually dead and separated from God because of that inherited guilt and inherited sin nature. 
Sin nature then manifests itself in various ways as we grow older, and it requires God's intervention, or we would continue in that spiritually dead state, uh, eternally rebellious against him. <clears throat> so because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, rather than human means, he did not inherit the guilt or the sin nature that would have been the result of natural birth. He was born fully human, fully man, but without sin's guilt or a sin nature. He was born with a nature that was morally pure and uncorrupted. And many passages attest to that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was like a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1.19, Hebrews 7.26, He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Yet, <clears throat> even though he was born without inherited sin or a corrupted human nature, he was, and his nature was fully human. <clears throat> and he experienced all that we experienced. He was tempted to sin in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right? Now, we're going to move on. There are numerous texts that would indicate that Jesus was indwelt, filled, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> A couple of passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 11.2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And chapter 61.1, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Messiah speaking, Jesus. And then according to John 3.34, this is also referring to Jesus, it says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And everything I read indicated that that giving was to Jesus, giving the Spirit to Jesus without measure. And what that means is without any limitation, but rather completely or in fullness. So now, none of those passages indicate when the Spirit was given to Jesus, the time when that happened. But you do have this text where it talks about the Spirit being given to John the Baptist. And that says Luke, in Luke 1.15, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So it would seem reasonable to assume that if John the Baptist the forerunner of Christ, was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb that Jesus would also be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Now, that does not say that anywhere explicitly in Scripture, but it's a reasonable assumption, not necessarily a hard and fast truth. So, it's very likely that Jesus was filled with the Spirit from the moment of conception and then in Luke 2.40, he speaks about the growth of Jesus in his childhood. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And also in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew intellectually, spiritually, in his human nature, and this can certainly be seen as the result of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. It's essentially the fulfillment of that prophetic passage in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Christ's growth in wisdom and knowledge was due to the Holy Spirit's agency in him. He wasn't born with that knowledge and wisdom as a result of his divine nature seeping into his human nature, which, as I said before, would have nullified that human nature, but rather the Holy Spirit caused his human nature, untainted by sin, to grow to its full potential, intellectually, emotionally, uh, spiritually, filled, enlightened, enabled by the Holy Spirit. He grew in wisdom and the fear of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit was not only necessary for the conception, the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, but he was also um, there to enable uh, the full potential, the growth to full potential, filled, enlightened again, and enabled by the Holy Spirit from infancy to mature manhood. Now, the next significant work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ is at his baptism, at which point Jesus is anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of his role as Messiah and for public ministry. Even though he'd been filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding in his personal life, he still needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit uh, in a special way for the purpose of ministry. And aside from the Spirit growing and maturing him, still needed the Spirit to equip him with the necessary gifts and abilities to fulfill that role as Messiah and Savior. And this took place at his baptism. Luke 3, 21 through 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then it says in Luke 4.1, it says, Jesus, then full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So after his baptism, it's, he's described as being full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he will be tempted by the devil. And then in Luke 4.14, it tells us that he began his public preaching ministry after the temptation, and it describes how he did that. Luke 4.14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. <clears throat> now, prior to this baptism, or prior to his baptism, there is no mention 
of any ministry, preaching or otherwise, aside from uh, one brief discussion with the Pharisees when he was 12 years old. But soon after his baptism and after the 40 days in the wilderness being tempted, he does begin to preach. And the text for his first sermon was Isaiah 61.1. And this is in Luke 4, 18 through 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what he was saying was the Holy Spirit had come upon him to enable and empower him to begin preaching the gospel in his messianic role and public ministry. Okay, so the Holy Spirit also gave Jesus special gifts and enablement to cast out demons and perform miracles. You see this in the exchange Jesus has with the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And Jesus also let them know uh, that by saying that Jesus was casting out the demons by Beelzebul, they were actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit because it was the Holy Spirit who was responsible for those miracles through Jesus or empowering Jesus to perform those miracles. And then in Acts 10, 38, Peter reminds Cornelius that Jesus' miracle-working ability was due to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Then also in Luke 4, 18 through 19, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, not only is he enabled to preach the gospel, but attributes his miraculous ability to heal to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So while this is referring primarily to spiritual healing, okay, I think it's safe to assume that it also relates or speaks to his miraculous ability or the miraculous ability of Jesus to heal physically done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a question as to whether Christ performed other miracles by virtue of his, his divine power, his divine nature, rather than through the agency of the Holy Spirit. There are passages in Scripture that would definitely seem to indicate that that is the case, uh, such as Mark 5.30 and Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 5.17. Plus, the bulk of the miracles that Jesus performed uh, in the text are never attributed to the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, in the, in the incarnation, Jesus was fully God and fully man, 
two natures in one. Human nature of Christ was essentially added to the person of Christ, to that divine nature. They did not fuse together. His divine nature didn't override his human nature, and his human nature did not undermine the divine nature. So the argument that would support the position of Christ at times exercising his divine attributes would be that this was only done in submission to the Father's will rather than independently, and that the purpose of Christ performing miracles in his own power was to confirm the fact that he was the Messiah, that he was God the Son and sovereign over every aspect of creation. Fully God, while fully man, and the performance of those miracles by divine power and prerogative without the aid of the Spirit did not violate his human nature or nullify him as the perfect sacrifice as this would not have interfered with him living a sinless life through the aid of the Spirit or willingly sacrificing himself through the aid of the Spirit. If you want to talk about that, we can talk about it later. Jesus was, though, clearly empowered by the Spirit to preach, cast out demons, and perform healing miracles, even if some of those miracles were performed by his divine nature without compromising his human nature. A number of resources I used also said that the statement in John 3.34 that the Spirit was given to Jesus without limitation implies that the Holy Spirit produced all of the fruit of the Spirit in Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And that certainly seems to be evident in the life uh, and the character of Jesus. And because there was no limit, limit in the enablement or the empowerment of the Spirit, he was also endowed with all spiritual gifts of the Spirit. So everything Jesus was able to do and accomplish in his human nature was due to the work of the Holy Spirit uh, enabling, gifting, empowering him. And again, that's in his human nature. Now, I want to revisit the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, wilderness, which takes place after his baptism and is then followed by the beginning of his public ministry. Luke says that after the baptism, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And the accounts of the temptation in Matthew 4, 1 and Matthew, uh, Mark 1, 12 say that he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Luke 4, 1 says he was led in the wilderness. So just a note on that grammar, Luke uses an imperfect verb form of the word for led, which would indicate an ongoing act rather than a momentary act. So this would mean that not only did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness, and actually, uh, I can't remember if it was Mark or Matthew, it actually says he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. Not only was he led into the wilderness for the purpose of temptation, but the Holy Spirit during the entire 40 days was with him, was leading him, was guiding him, was helping him, was empowering him to resist and overcome every temptation. 
And then at the end of the 40 days of temptation, Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Spirit. So that whole period of temptation from beginning to end was under the direction and enablement of the Spirit. It was the Spirit that enabled and empowered the human nature of Jesus to resist and overcome all the temptations that Satan threw at him. And once again, it was not his divine nature seeping into his human nature or the divine nature taking over, but rather as the fully and complete man Jesus fully relied on and was enabled by the Holy Spirit to resist temptation in his human nature. And the Holy Spirit was also actively working in the life of Christ right up to the moment of his death. The Spirit enabled him to embrace his mission to suffer his substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross to save sinners. He was enabled to die willingly rather than out of mere duty or begrudgingly. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So if Jesus had died unwillingly in his human nature, forced out of compulsion or with resistant or um, resentful attitude, the sacrifice would have been nullified by a sinful attitude or opposition to the Father's will, which he was incapable of doing. But through the work of the Spirit, he was able to offer a perfect sacrifice, not forced against his will and his human nature. Rather, he went to his death willingly, knowing the consequences, yet submitting to death on the cross with trust and obedience. He offered a perfect sacrifice through the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He offered himself without blemish to God. He offered the perfect sacrifice through the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to offer the perfect sacrifice, but the Spirit's work didn't end there. The Spirit was then involved in the resurrection of Jesus, and there are passages that attribute the resurrection to God. Again, this is one of those situations where it's pretty clear that all members of the Trinity are involved in this, in this action. Um. Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, uh, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, that doesn't make any distinction between the members of the Trinity, although some uh, theologians think that that is actually referring to the Father. But then Christ himself attributed resurrection power to himself in his words to Martha in John 11.25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And earlier in John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So in those passages, Jesus attributes his resurrection to his own power. And in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, Christ's resurrection is clearly credited to the Father. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the Father is credited with the resurrection. Father and Son are given credit, uh, but as I said before, all members of the Trinity are involved, and there are passages that indicate that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the resurrection. Romans 8, 11 says, if the spirit of man who raised, I'm sorry, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this passage not only attributes the resurrection of Jesus to the Holy Spirit, but it also indicates that the spirit, spirit which currently indwells all believers Uh, will also be involved in our future resurrection. Now, I will point out that it is not unanimous. Um, That spirit of him mentioned in that verse is referring to the Holy Spirit. Some see it as a reference to the Father, but the rest of the verse confirms the work uh, of the Spirit in raising believers to resurrection life. The Spirit's work in Christ's resurrection is said to be only implied, uh, but assumed through a parallel connection with the believer's resurrection. But I would say that the first explanation is actually simpler and a better understanding of the text. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, we know that the Holy Spirit indwells believers and we'll be getting to that in a week or two. So the text does seem to affirm that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, along with Christ himself and the Father. Now, final work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ would be in his glorification. But there is no specific text that addresses that event. We do know that the Spirit is responsible for the glorification of believers, so it's safe to assume that the glorification of the human nature of Christ um, is also the work of the Holy Spirit. seems fairly reasonable since the Holy Spirit began the work in Christ's nature from birth through adulthood until his death and resurrection, so the Spirit's work in his resurrected glorified state is certainly implied by virtue of the Spirit's work in every other stage and aspect of the life of Christ. Okay? So, now, to wrap it up this morning, a couple of concluding thoughts in reflecting on the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ. First of all, remember that Jesus was always and is always fully man, while at the same time and in the same person, fully God. In every moment of his life, his divine nature did not cause the human nature to cease to be fully human, didn't deify his humanity. His divine nature didn't cause his human nature to think, speak, or act like God. This means that his divine nature didn't limit the necessity of the Holy Spirit's work in aiding, strengthening, gifting, or empowering his human nature in the humanity of Christ. His human nature was without sin and fully empowered and gifted by the Spirit without limit. 
as a man. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit at his conception and birth to keep him from sin. And as he grew from youth to manhood, he needed the Holy Spirit to help him grow in knowledge, wisdom, obedience, and holiness. And at his baptism, the Holy Spirit was needed to anoint, equip, and empower him for his role as Messiah and public ministry. And in his temptation in the wilderness, the Spirit empowered uh, him, enabled him to resist temptation and evil. The Spirit also enabled Jesus to go to the cross, making the perfect sacrifice for sin, then raised him from the dead and glorified him through the agency of all the members of the Trinity, including the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, just uh, some application here. If Christ, the perfect man, conceived by the Holy Spirit and free from any sin, either by imputed guilt or in his human nature, if he was dependent on the Holy Spirit throughout every phase and aspect of his life, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit? We have been corrupted by sin and even after we come to saving faith, even after we are regenerated and receive a new nature, we continue to sin, we continue to go our own way, we continue to grieve the Holy Spirit. So if God the Son needed the aid and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in his sinless human nature to grow in knowledge, wisdom, obedience, and favor with God and man, how much more do we need in our often sinful selves the Holy Spirit's aid in empowerment to grow in knowledge, wisdom, obedience, and favor with God and man. If Christ needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for his public ministry to proclaim the gospel with power, how much more do we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for public ministry and to proclaim the gospel with power? If when Jesus was confronted with temptation, he needed the strengthening of the Spirit to resist and overcome that temptation without ever falling into sin, how much more do we need the strengthening of the Spirit to resist and overcome temptation and to keep us from sinning? And if God, the Son, in his humanity needed the Holy Spirit in order to offer himself up to God and obey him willingly and without resentment for what he was called to do, even death on the cross, how much more will we need the help, the enablement, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do willingly whatever the Lord may call us to do, dying to self and being willing to die for the sake of the gospel. That is it for this morning. Are there any questions? Okay, you are dismissed. Looking at uh, regeneration, the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration of believers and uh, also um, illumination.